Hello and welcome. I'm your hostess, Tanai, and I'm an intuitive coach. I help people feel fully self-expressed in their lives and relationships by learning to accept and love every part of themselves. For the past 10 years, I've worked with all kinds of sex and relationship experts to heal my own commitment phobia, to find out that there's actually no such thing. I'm ready to share everything that I've learned. So this podcast is my opportunity to debunk commitment phobia. So drop all your preconceived notions and tune in to hear what I've learned along my journey about what it takes for people to really create authentic and intimate connections. This is Commitment Phobe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Hotamir. He's a developmental psychologist, licensed mental health counselor, and founder of The Wiser Place, which is a clinical practice centered on well-being, identity, sexuality, and relationships. So very excited to see what he has to hear today. He was introduced to me by my friend Taylor Cohen. Um, So welcome on the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's exciting to talk about this with you. Yeah, you're going to be the first psychologist that I have on the show. Cool, yeah. So think, super excited. Yeah, it seems like you have a well, well-rounded well yeah, yeah. group, right, of people that you've interviewed. Yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to bring in uh, perspectives from all angles. So tell us, what do you do as a developmental psychologist, and how does that play into relationships and intimacy? Yeah, sure. So a developmental psychologist is um, is someone who studies the uh who studies human development right so we talk about lifespan development uh we often make the mistake um and assume that development ends um in uh preschool or or in the early years and what we've what we know now is that we are constantly developing we're constantly evolving and changing and growing our identity formation all those kind of things uh, are still uh, a work in progress hopefully until we die right so it's something that we constantly want to be growing and learning uh, based on our experiences, on the people we interact with. So the study of human development is across the lifespan. Um, Eric Erickson, I'm a big fan, one of the early psychologists, he studied under Freud. He was a colleague of Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, um, and he developed stage theory. So the stage theory took it, took um, Freud's theory, right, of of, uh, uh, psychosexual stages and moved it to psychosocial. So it talked more about relationships and how we interact with the world. And he expanded it beyond adolescence throughout adulthood. So it gives us a clearer idea of, of how we move through life and the different conflicts that we have that inform decisions that we make as we move into different environments and different life stages. Um, so that's kind of the, the general overview of what human, de- the study of human development. Um, what I, I do a few things. I like to have my hand in a few things. So, um, I've done research for several years on, um, social networks. So, um, how we support each other, um, through our networks, right? So support networks or social networks, not necessarily like Instagram or, uh, TikTok. I mean, those things are, are a part of our social network, but more, um, but more of an actual network that we have. So close ties that we have in our like nucleus and then kind of as it, as it uh, moves out um, to weaker ties or acquaintances and things like that. Specifically, I was studying how we look, how, how we, that can help us deal with, let's say relationships. So let's say you have a partner that your family hates, right? So that creates a certain conflict in our network, right? Or let's say you come out as gay and you get rejected by your close friends. So then how do we, cultivate support within that network? How do we navigate our network when it's not as as simple as maybe, you know, some, as not as simple as it is for some people, right? Or or has how how it changes or becomes more dynamic. Um, Clinically, as you mentioned, so I focus on identity, sexuality, relationships. Um, A large part of my practice focuses on anxiety. um, And we just put out a a book, me and a group of other psychologists on a a journal on um, it's called the Anti-Anxiety Journal. So it helps kind of use cognitive behavioral skills to combat anxiety or to at least learn to ma- manage it. And uh, I think that sums up most of what I'm mm-hmm. currently doing. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that you said that you're working with other psychologists. It's so cool that you guys can come together and 
yeah. work on these things. Yeah, yeah. It's so important. And more and more, we realize that we can't work in silos, you know, in general, in the health field, right? We need to kind of, yeah. we need to have an all hands on deck approach. There, there's no no way about it, right? Because every individual has their own story and their own experience, their own life, their own their own uh, uh, ingredients, you know, that they're bringing to the table. Right. And to have a, a one size fits all approach just doesn't work, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, how did you get into the sexuality and relationship and identity side? Like, where did that interest grow from? That's a that's a that's a great question because it's evolved, I guess, over time. But it started, I think, as an undergrad. Right. Um, I I was raised Orthodox, uh, ultra Orthodox right, in the Chabad community. And um, dating styles are are quite different, you know, in different circles. Right. So there are different rules. So there's a lot of like um, uh, sex segregation, right, or separation in school or, you know, casual dating is not really encouraged sex outside of marriage or even the purpose or, of, of sex or kind of, you know, uh, the utility of sex are things that are, are have a little bit of a different view than some circles. So it, it led me to start thinking about how does that impact our relationship? What is the, you know, how does the social environment or the religious expectations or family expectations impact how we interact with someone? And does that have a, a positive or negative effect on the the lasting of that relationship? Will it last? Can we commit to each other? Can we stick it out? Um, and what's interesting is that the social, and this is why I moved on into social networks, because the support network, the social network really seemed to be key. You know, that seemed, it seemed like if you had the support that you need, or, or at least you have a context in which what, what you're doing is um, acceptable, then it made it much easier to work through hardships. Because every relationship is going to have bumps, right? We're always going to have hurdles, and we're two different people coming together trying to make a life. There's always going to be some challenge. How we navigate those challenges um, depends uh, um, largely on our support network, mm-hmm. our ability to cope and manage and pull through. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, you know, I, I told you that I wanted to ask you about your dissertation on romantic relationships and adjustment in early adulthood, which mentions that we should consider what you're talking about, the social network perspective. So why is it that you know, we talk so much on attachment theory and attachment styles when it comes to how people relate to others and how comfortable they are with intimacy and not what you're talking about. <laughs> That's a good question. I think mm-hmm. we I think we live in a society where we like bite-sized information, right? We like kind of like a little nugget and then we want to run with it. So, you know, attachment is is a very important study. Um, you know, uh, uh, Mary Ainsworth and, and John Bowlby, they, you know, they, they taught us a lot. Um, Carlos Monkeys about attachment, about nurture, about what we need. Those were important studies, you know, decades ago. And, and we've learned from them. We continue to learn from them. But to, to limit it to that and not move and not just include that in the, the big picture of what makes a relationship work is, is missing out a lot of important, uh, important data, I think, right? So, I think that if you speak to relationship experts, um, there is maybe perhaps more of a dynamic approach, but, but I think attachment is a good entry to the conversation. I think it's a good place to start. Um, but it's not everything. And, and it's the same thing when we talk about like personality character traits, you know, or like type A or like, you know, putting someone in a box for certain behaviors, I think is very limiting. I think we don't, we don't really get to who a person is or how a relationship can progress or proceed if we're like putting ourselves in a very narrow uh, box. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, at least among my friends, everyone's sort of getting hooked on the next personality test on the next book about that. And, and uh, attached is a book that has been thrown around in conversation or a lot lately, you know, it's like people are sort of discovering, oh, wow, I have anxious attachment or secure attachment. And that explains why I am the way I am in relationships. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, when, when you talk about that social network, what are some examples of how that plays into how someone um, is in a relationship? So let's just say, um, so, uh, so I was talking about, you know, my, my, um, my thesis, right, or a dissertation study. So one example is, so we interviewed hundreds of couples, several hundred couples, and um, 
one, you know, one um, vignette or one one category um, that we found were were um, let's say like in uh, in Williamsburg, right, with the ultra orthodox community, where where the men and women live very separate lives like in their professional you know family world is kind of a dichotomy right this is what the men do this is what the women do it's kind of clearly outlined and and the roles are pretty set right but within each of those settings there's a very strong support network so if you are a stay-at-home mom um, with with uh, several kids there's a whole network on your block in your building around you that are dealing with the same thing and can communicate and give tools and help and aid. The same thing if you are uh, a man in, uh, let's say, in a workplace. I know it sounds very 1950s, but it is true for many couples, right? That kind of dichotomy. And even if it were flipped, right, that the man was the man was at home with the kids or the woman's at work, it's the same idea of of the support around us. It's also uh, communal support, right? So people pitching in and helping. And I think that there is a very strong movement now with the younger community with a younger generation of support showing support helping certainly amplified with social media and i think that's great all these kind of gofundmes and and um, gatherings and vigils and protests people showing up in a way that i think is very meaningful it, it is interesting to see how how it translates right so for generations for for millennia it's been physically coming together right um, like coming together to the town square or showing up in someone's home after a loss, coming to a wedding or a party, right? So it's yeah. been very, very much based on proximity. And this has changed drastically for two reasons, right? So at least two reasons, right? So one is the internet, right? Uh, we travel a lot differently nowadays. People move away from home. We're, we're much further apart. Um, so a lot of the communication accesses through internet, SMS, our phones, et cetera, does not necessarily physically close. And then COVID kind of like <laughs> was a nail in the coffin in the sense of like, have we ended this kind of chapter, excuse me, this chapter of showing up and have now moved into a very different kind of showing up, but that's more virtual. Now, it doesn't mean that it's any less valuable. It's just different. We're gonna we're gonna see what that means, right? But you have, um, you know, we've all read in the news all kind all kinds of um, new ways that we're showing up um, with COVID, right? So, like, let's say uh, zooming into a friend's party, right? Or uh, you know, or FaceTiming more regularly with a long term partner, yeah, uh, long uh, long distance partner. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that how that how we move in that direction. Yeah, right. Yeah. And when and when you mentioned, you know, in these Orthodox communities where even though the sexes are, you know, sort of live in their own worlds, they have communities within them that support them. How does that affect the way that they are in their romantic relationships? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. So. Let's let's broaden that a little bit. Right. Because it's it's you know, because I think it's hard to generalize about any group. Right. So because every 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 group has their own nuances and their own story right and no yeah i guess my question is like how does that community or like that social network support affect the the individual well i think it comes to uh, i think that comes to a really interesting point and and i think if i can put that as a question it's what do we expect out of our romantic partners right and i think that mm -hmm. is what's interesting you know it's um there's a, an uh, uh, academic at, at uh, Clark University, J.J. Arnett. So he, he coined the term um, emerging adulthood or like the word millennials, I guess, be, came out. But, but emerging adulthood, right, which is basically saying that you're not just an adult after you turn 18. Like that's not how it works, right? It takes time, right? And we see like nowadays it's really closer to 30, right? When you consider when you. Yeah, especially. Yeah. No, yeah, I was going to say, especially like we talked about on our last call, which you said that, you know, People in their late twenties and thirties are moving back with their parents, right? So we do keep pushing that boundary, yeah. Yeah, and and there are all, there's all kinds of, of speculation or questions why that is. You know, people are living longer, so maybe our lifespan we don't have to jump into work at seventeen because you know we're living longer. Uh, people are wealthier than they've been in the past, so there's more comfort, less less fear, maybe more freedom of decision. Um, the yeah. general approach... Or less need to work when you're like 16. You know, like before it was like, all right, you're out at like 12, 14, 15. Yeah, yeah. And then yourself. another interesting yeah. dynamic is, for, at least in, 
in the US, the attitude, I think, for a long time has been like, ooh, I'm, I'm 17, I'm 18, I'm going to get out of the house, I want to get away from here. And I think um, younger people nowadays don't necessarily have that feeling about their parents or their family or their communities where they're like, I got to get out, I hate it, you know, where I think it's a healthy thing that they feel more comfortable. So, so I think there are all kinds of interesting terms, but when we come to this idea of what do we expect? So I brought up JJ Arnett. So he, he, his mom, he, he talked about, I, he talked about meeting his mom, uh, speaking to his mom about relationships, right? Cause they were married for, they were married for a really long time. I don't know, like 70 years, you know, his parents. And he was asking them like what, what they saw in each other or how it worked. So, so he asked his mom, like when you met dad, like, why did you decide to marry him? So she's like, well, you know, he had really big hands. And and I thought that was important, you know, because I'm like a small person and like it's hard to hold things. So like I look at that as like, that's a good thing to have in a man. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's kind of like a joke because it's like if we set our expectations at a reasonable place, I think we can have very positive, healthy, happy, long-term relationships. But we often come into relationships with unrealistic expectations where we expect our partner to be everything, right? A best friend, a confidant, a lover, someone who's great in bed, someone who's great with our family and our friends. And like, there's so many roles that we expect out of one person. And it's just not reasonable. It's not reasonable. Why did that happen? I I don't know. I, I think that, um, there's definitely the, the idea of like media or like, you know, movies or kind of how we watch things like, ooh, that would be perfect. That kind of like Hollywood idea, perhaps. I don't, I don't know. I think yeah. it might be a little easy to just blame that. But but there's part of it, maybe that definitely yeah. affects mm-hmm. how like uh, how we look at beauty. Right. Or how we look at what we expect our partners to look like, right. which can be very unrealistic. Right. So so there's definitely unrealistic expectations. And I think that is the beginning of a very big problem in relationships because we have to set our expectations to a reasonable place where we're not setting our relationship up for failure and we're not setting our partner up for failure because it doesn't feel good to feel like we're always coming up short in a relationship, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, this this reminds me of that article that you saw share about how it's not even about personality really. You know, when it comes to dating apps and you're looking for that personality, that it's more about cultivating the relationship than the personality traits. So, Absolutely. Yeah, how much truth is in there? Yeah, so that we definitely need to have some sense, some level of compatibility. You know, that's important, right? Um, some level of attraction. But w- what we see is that couples that are, are more successful or, or happier, let's say, or report um, more satisfaction in their relationship um, tend to be people with who have, who have a more of a, a grit approach to the relationship like i can i can work on this i can fix this i can change as opposed to this is mm. this like stagnant thing you know this is a, a barrier so i think how we look at challenges is important right and it doesn't change you know when we when we look at our relationship right if, if i have a workout goal and i feel a challenge the goal is to work past that challenge right right to work past the soreness to try to get past that but relationships similarly right it's about achieving a goal and it can be difficult and there can be setbacks and it can feel bad sometimes but we know that we're working towards a positive goal i think that we often miss that point of looking at relationships as a work in progress as opposed to like no this is how they are this is what they said this is what they did and therefore you know i can't do this i'm not interested i'm done yeah you know yeah i get that very much resonates with me and i and i actually wanted to ask you if you think that's more common now that we're, you know, all very individualistic. You know, we all can take care of our own needs and don't rely so much on other people. So is it really that practical? Is it really as practical as saying, well, we don't really need someone, so we're less tolerant to, you know, wanting to work things through? Yeah, I think that's interesting. The format has changed, right? The dependency, I think, has changed, right? So as the the as we level the playing field a little better, so it's not like, oh, I need to marry this person because I need a home, right? Or I need to marry this person right. because I'm, I don't know, I, I need to have children, whatever it is. Things have changed pretty dramatically so that we can feel very independent and autonomous and and therefore not willing to deal with a lot of crap, right? 
Yeah. I think that's progress. I think that's healthy. That's good, right? That, <laughs> yeah. That's a good thing because n- I don't like the notion of like, you know, finding your other half or like, you know, my better half or all that kind of, that, because the implication is that we're not whole. And I don't, mm. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't like that. I don't think that that's healthy. I think we're two whole, <laughs> we're two people and we're coming together if that's what we want, you know, to, to have some companionship and some intimacy and some and share love and and whatever it is that we're looking for like that's great but the notion that i am lacking without you i don't know that that's healthy mm-hmm. right right it's more like i want to be with you not i need to be with you it's just coming out of i'm happy and i want to share some happiness with you yeah that that seems healthier right uh, and yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, and there's this uh there's an interesting thing when we talk about dependency, right? So so there's codependence, right? Which which we know it can can be unhealthy, right? When we depend on each other in a way that we don't feel autonomous and we don't feel um like we can make our own decisions and we need that other person more than is healthy, let's say, right? Then there yeah. is independence right? Which has a positive connotation. But when you're talking about a relationship, being too independent or not taking our partner into account can can end a relationship, right? It can be very dismissive. It can say, I really don't need you. And that message feels like rejection. And that doesn't help the relationship. So then we talk about something called interdependence, right? And this is this idea of like two holes coming together. We're, we're letting ourselves be vulnerable for this other person. We're letting ourselves be vulnerable for the sake of this relationship, right? We're not letting ourselves be abused or or, or go through something that is, is negative or very uncomfortable for a long time or whatever that is. We're not, we're not saying vulnerability is, is, um, is abuse, right? But it means being open. Like to love someone, we need to be willing to get hurt, right? And oftentimes we build this fortress around our emotions and around our heart where we say, I don't want to get hurt. So I'm not letting people in too close. That's how I stay safe. Mm -hmm. And that does have, you know, evolutionarily that has a purpose, right? There's a reason that we do that, right? To protect ourselves because we feel otherwise we'll be fragile or, or easy to attack. Um, But at the same time, it sends a message of, you know, do not enter or you're not welcome here. So how do we balance those, those um, walls that we put up or the, or the safety net, the safety that we put up, right. To make sure that we're, that we're not hurt and we're not harmed that we're not put in a place where vulnerability feels insecure or unsafe, but also be open. Also let ourselves be vulnerable on a level that we can love someone we can go out of our way for someone else. We can make space for someone. So I think that'll be that'll be an interesting new area that we that we work on. I mean, it's 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 not a brand new area in the subject. It's a, it's new, I think, because it's much more common. Like this is a common conversation and, now. Yeah, and talked right? about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um and and speaking on on you know feeling safe without vulnerability, I think the next level, um conversation that we're not talking about is the anxiety around intimacy Mm. you know like personally um i've shared my story on this podcast the the moment that it felt like there was you know a lot of intimacy with me and a partner my anxiety would you know would just be insane like i couldn't sleep i couldn't stop thinking it just like felt so unsafe to be vulnerable with this person and the only way that i knew how to you know give myself any sort of freedom or any sort of like any, the, the only way I knew how to feel better was to end the relationship because I just wanted to end the anxiety. You know, that's all I really wanted. Right. And so I would love for you to talk about like, what is that anxiety that comes up for people when, you know, when we get closer or feel that sense of commitment? Yeah, I, I think that, well, thank you for sharing that. And I, I think that's such an important question. Um, I don't know that there is a general answer. Right. I think it's very individualized right. depending on yeah, what what experiences we've had coming coming in. But a few points to that question. Right. So one is learning to manage anxiety. Right. So anxiety is really interesting. Right. Because some level of anxiety is necessary for our survival. 
right? If I'm not anxious right. about walking on a highway or walking off a cliff, <laughs> like that's the problem, right? So, so we need right. that level of fear or that level of, of anxiety to protect us, right? So we have like a certain siren in our brain, our red flag that says there is danger here, don't proceed, right? So, so it's, it's in order for, it, we use it for self-preservation. The problem with, with when we have, let's say, generalized anxiety disorder, or when we have a, um, a problem with anxiety is when we're getting the wrong message, when we're getting an emergency message, but there actually is no emergency, right? Mm. So one example is, you know, you're working in your, you know, your office building and um, the fire alarm goes off, right? So you step outside of your office and you see a technician there working on the fire alarm. And they say, don't worry, I'm just testing it. Everything's fine, right? So you go back into your office and continue working. Then you hear it again. So there's an automatic red flag that goes up in your mind when you hear a siren that you know it's an emergency, right? That's been, right. that we know that that's been conditioned, right? That's kind of where set. It's automatic. We don't even have to think about that. We know it's a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. But now we have this new information, right? We have new information saying, oh, I know it sounds like an emergency, but it's not an emergency. So hopefully we can process that information in a way that can calm that anxiety. Say, oh, yes, that does sound like an emergency, but now we know it's not an emergency. Therefore, I can go back to what I'm doing, right? So then our heart rate comes back to normal. Or we feel a little more comfortable and we can, we can work even through those. When we, don't, when we can't manage our anxiety or we don't feel in control of our anxiety, every time we hear that alarm, we panic. Our heart stops. We freeze. We step out again. What if, what if, what if they're fixing it, but there actually is a fire? What, you know, I think I smell smoke. Mm. I don't, you know, who knows? There are all kinds of what ifs, right? Yeah. Uncertainties in the world that we can contend with. And, and our mind is kind of just trying to spit out like iterations of what to do, right? So when we talk about fear and anxiety, what we typically do in a situation is we reflect on the information that we have, even, you know, either from our own experiences or from narrative, from what we've heard from other people, from what we've read, stop, drop, and roll that you've heard in school, whatever it is, we collect, we collect this information, we store it. But what happens if you don't know what to do in a situation? What happens if you don't have information? What do you do? So what our mind does is it kind of leaves the rational realm and it goes into this kind of spitting out ideas of like anything that can be done. And, you know, it could be wow. one idea that makes sense, but a thousand ideas that make no sense at all. But we're not, we're not in that sensical mindset, right? We've, we've moved out of there. And, and that is what we call panic. That's panic when it's mm-hmm. like, and then when you think about it later, when you try to describe it, it you know, it does, it sounds like it, it makes no sense. You know, it's not a rational way of thinking, but that is still a real fear that you're feeling. And then we have this. And sensations in the body. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Then we have this feedback loop, right? Because our body starts to react to these thoughts, right? So we feel our temperature go up and our heart starts racing and we're sweating. And then our mind reads that, right? Because we're constantly scanning our body for information, right? The same way we know it's cold or it's hot. Same way we know when something sounds like it's unsafe, right? So now we where our body, our mind is scanning our body and saying, wait, we're sweating and our heart's beating and we feel a little tense in our muscles. This must be an actual emergency. And then our thoughts get even wilder. We're spiraling. So it's this kind of feedback loop that, that we need to get out of. So one way that we try to climb out of that is to bring the rational mind back into the conversation. So one way to do it is to use questions. You know, what you know, we say, what if, what if, what if, right? What if all these horrible things are going to happen? So then we can stick in something like, what if everything works out? <laughs> what if it's actually not a fire? <laughs> you know, w- you know, w- what are the odds, you know, that this is something that's actually a concern? You know, might I be overreacting? You know, things that we kind of, and, and it's, we think of it as like a tug of war in our, in our mind, for, for what part of our mind do we want to engage? So bringing in some rationale helps bring that part of our mind back in saying, Hey, don't check out. <laughs> We're going a little, a, a little wild here with ideas. Let's, let's try to stay focused and think about more reasonable outcomes. Right. Yeah. So now when we think about relationships, we, you know, 
dealing with anxiety directly, I think is important. So learning cognitive behavioral skills and thinking about how do we deal with anxiety in general? How do we manage anxiety? We don't try to eradicate it, but we try to learn how to manage it differently and how to react differently to it. Because how we react to our anxiety teaches us if our anxiety is valid or not. So let's say the example that you brought, right? Um, I'm in the room with someone and I like that person and I'm getting intimate with that person. And then I feel a feeling of panic and I feel like uh, I'm really not comfortable. And I, I don't think I want to go further physically. I don't want to kind of keep touching each other right now. I just, yeah. I don't feel or safe emotionally. or emotionally, let's say. And, yeah. and then I, I'm feeling kind of that my body's reacting to it. Right. I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable. I'm feeling my heart raise. My muscles are, are, are tensing up. Um, and my impulse is to run, right? It could be physically to run or emotionally shut down. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. To withdraw. Right. So, so that is my, my instinct. The question is what we do next. So if I get up and leave or if I mentally shut down, right. I'm assuming this is not an unsafe situation, right? This is just a, a per perfectly right. voluntary situation. Then I'm telling my mind, yes, this is dangerous. Get out. I'm doing that. I'm following that instruction. And now I have a new data point saying, when in this situation, do this. This is correct. This is the reaction that is required, right? So we're teaching ourselves that behavior in real time. Right. So ways to challenge that, right? So in general, if someone's feeling unsafe, they should remove themselves from a situation, right? Even if it's voluntary, yeah, yeah. right? Even if it's consensual, but you don't feel comfortable and getting away, that's not a bad idea. But then we want, when we do feel safe, we want to address, why am I feeling that? What is it? And we try to get into the feeling of it. Like, what is it? You know, what are the stages? I liked hanging out and having dinner. I liked going out and having coffee. I liked taking a walk. I liked being, you know, in my apartment. I didn't like it when they said this. I didn't like it when they moved closer. Like what was, what are the, and what is that? Why, where have I seen that before, right? So we try to delve into patterns. We try to learn what is it there. Now, one thing that helps is to communicate that if we can, right? So let's say I would say to the partner, hey, I, I know that, um, you know, I, I kind of shut down yesterday um, and, and I'm sorry if that felt, um, like a negative or like a rejection. I'm, I'm just trying to sort out how I feel, how I'm feeling. I just felt a little bit triggered for some reason. I'm not sure why. I don't think you had any bad intentions, but I just felt a little uncomfortable. And I, I like you a lot. I want to make sure that I feel comfortable with you. So I'm going to kind of navigate that and try to figure it out. And I'll keep you posted, but you know, please don't take it personal. Right. So mm. at least it's clue. And what is, yeah, I just want to ask like, what is communicating that provide? Because a lot of people think, you know, it's going to be a deal breaker if they communicate that. They'll be weird. Um, yeah, just what is the benefit of communicating that for, for people who are, you know, um, avoid communication? I think that's a real challenge that we have, right? Because we know, you know, we know what we should say. But then in that moment of communication, it's really difficult to talk about those things, especially if we're not clear about it. Because if we don't understand it, I don't understand why I'm reacting this way yet. You know, so right. it like so makes no sense. Right. Yeah. So but I, I'm thinking about what are the alternatives to communication? So the alternative is to actually escape or get out or run, right? Or to emotionally withdraw or to suffer through it. Like those are all those are all not helpful to the longevity of the relationship, right? So if I care about the relationship or I care about the other person, then Finding the language to communicate in a way that's not hurtful, I think is very valuable. And I think there's a way to present it exactly like that. Saying, I care too much about you to say, to, to ignore this. I care too much about you to make believe it's nothing. I just want you to know this is something I'm going through. And I hope you can support me in that. And if they can't, I would want to know that early on in a relationship, yeah. right? If so, if someone can't <laughs> can be there for you in, in a meaningful way, or they can't be patient, or they can't understand when you're being vulnerable, then that's a red flag, right? So yeah. if someone came, if a client told me that they, they didn't want to communicate, I would encourage, or, or they didn't know how to communicate that, I would encourage them to practice it or to, or to go to couples therapy 
um, you know, or at least try to understand in their own experience what they're dealing with. So maybe their own therapy or their own journaling, just to understand like, what's, what is this that I'm dealing with? Because it's hard for that not to come off as a rejection, right? And if that's not our, if that's not our goal, we don't want that person to feel rejected. We don't want to lose that person. Then we owe them some, some information, even if it's not a full answer, we owe them some insight. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Personally, you know, the tricky thing is that, that, that anxiety only came up when I first started dating, you know, in my, in my late teens. And I actually want to ask you something about that because um, it wasn't until I was like 16 that I really started having male friends um, and I date men. And so that was the first times really interacting with, you know, the opposite sex for me. And then that anxiety started coming up and it's not something that I could recognize because, you know, it's it's not like I had anxiety with my parents or with my family or with my friends whenever I got close to them. So my first question is, you know, when does that stress response really develop? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, we spoke about CBT, right? Or cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and cognitive behavioral therapy is very good at helping you deal with the issue in the moment. It's saying like, okay, this is what I do when I'm, I, I feel anxiety. I don't want to react this way. We're going to train you not to react this way. You know, under, we'll teach you a little bit about how your brain works, how your behavior works, and we'll change it. But that doesn't really help us in terms of insight as to where this is coming from. Like, why is this happening? Where, you know, and that would be my question, which I think you're getting at. You're saying this is when it was manifest. This is when it's, this is when it's presenting. You're saying I'm 16 or I'm 18 and suddenly it's presenting. But where did this come from? Is it just starting now or is it being triggered? Right. So it seems to me, you know, and I'm going to use some guesswork here that it's that it's being triggered, that it was latent, that it was something that existed on some level, but now it is triggered or it's engaged or 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 it's exacerbated. Now we feel it. How common is that? Yeah. How common is that with anxieties? I think um, I think it depends. Right. So there are different kinds of anxiety. Right. So there's like generalized anxiety disorder where it's not necessarily a trigger. It's not necessarily an event. It's not like PTSD where you had a bad experience and now, you know, you're, you're coping with, with having had that experience, right? Anxiety sometimes can just, you have anxiety and you feel it more in certain instances and you have to learn how to deal with those, either avoid those instances or how to better manage those situations or how you feel so that you feel safe, right? So I think it would depend. It would depend on, on where it's coming from. Right. Um, you know, let's, you know, let's be clear, like intimacy is, is letting someone else get really close. It could be physical, physical, emotional, psychological, but we're letting someone get to a place that is really personal. And if we have some, you know, we have boundaries, right. We all have our own boundaries or kind of what, what comfort level we have, you know, that's pushing the boundary. So I think like before we say like, what's wrong with me, we could say like, okay, this is like a big ask, right? For, I know a lot of people do it without thinking and a lot of people, you know, they, they, you know, can have a different experience, but it still is letting someone in very close. And that is, yeah. that automatically feels somewhat risky, right? So I, I think that's a good, a good place to start. Um, but but it would take a lot more to understand, I think, you know, what, what, yeah. what the settings are and the trappings and, and the environment and also the stories that we tell ourselves and the experiences that we've had that, you know, every, every person is really unique in the sense that, you know, we, we have our, our whole like world of experiences that we bring to a table, right? And, and then we meet someone else who has their whole world of experiences. So, so what's triggering what I think is still, is still, we're still learning about, right? There's a there's an area in, in psychological studies called um, Evo Devo, uh, evolutionary um, development, right? So it's so fascinating, right? So you know, um, we spoke about the idea of nature and nurture and how things play a role in our life, right? Um, so what we know what we know is that 
that that question is is like a false dichotomy, right? Is that we we can never separate nature and nurture, right? We just can't. You know, those things come together. You don't develop in a vacuum. You don't grow up in a lab, you know, where you can just be studied and you know see. I mean, there are rare mm-hmm. cases, you know, case studies that we see. Oh, this person was raised by wolves or whatever it is. But but in general, yeah. in general, we you know we're they both are a part of our makeup. And we know that there are certain triggers, right? There's a certain, let's say, a DNA makeup that is more susceptible to certain environmental cues, right? Or certain triggers, right? So if there's like alcoholism in a family, like I may be more prone to it based on access, knowledge, information, modeling, right? And then there's a kind of, you know, DNA or kind of what whatever else there is, let's say risk-taking you know, that's more common in the family. So there are all kinds of little things that are a lot more complicated than like, that's my personality or that's my nature or this is how I was taught, right? So yeah. we're just we're just scratching the surface, I think, with a lot of that information. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it just makes me think of how, you know, I grew up in a family where my parents were together um, my entire childhood. You know, there was no conflict. Um, and then at the same time, like I mentioned before, I didn't have any interaction with men until I was 16. So it's like all these different factors that can play, right? It's not like every person with parents that were divorced ends up having issues or, of right? Of course, yeah. So, yeah. So, so about that, you know, adolescent influence, what have you seen in your studies about, you know, how your experience with, with um, romantic relationships during your um, adolescence affects your adult relationships? Yeah. So from infancy and definitely in adolescence, when we're exploring more and we're trying to figure out our own identity, right? All of our relationships and not just romantic, right? Any interactions that we have with people inform how we interact and how we socialize and how we date, right? And the people we want to be intimate with or romantic with. So it's kind of a long line. So we talked about attachment, right? So like it starts there. It's also how we connect with people. Do we feel safe connecting with people? What kind of what kind of people do we feel safe with? How comfortable are we, you know, in general? Like there's an idea, you know, of introversion, extroversion, right? Where where extroversion is celebrated. That's looked at as positive and good and like, you know, and 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 better, really. But but so many people are just not signed up for that, right? It takes a lot of yeah. energy and it can be really difficult. And like it's it's strange that we just chose one. It's like, oh, that's really good. Be a go-getter, go do that, talk a lot or whatever it is, you know, or socializing or networking, you know, it takes a lot of energy and it's not always, you know, equal for all of us. Um, but all, so in general, any relationships that we have with siblings, with parents, with friends, with teachers, inform how we interact, how we move around with other people, right? How we dance, right? Adolescence is a very interesting time it's it's so interesting it's a time when we could not be more well i mean maybe when we're infants but otherwise you know we're so egocentric we're so focused on ourselves and how you know we're just really self self-centered i guess we're focused on ourselves and at the same time we are so focused on how we look and how people are you know how we fit in and society and kind of like our friend group and, and everyone's looking at us so we have this funny kind of thing where we're very concerned about, we're very focused on ourselves, but we're also very focused on how, how other people view us, right? I guess it's, it's two parts of the same, two sides of the same coin. So relationships at that time, when we're really starting to think about identity, right? We're thinking about our own identity um, is an interesting time, right? Because we often think about ourselves in the context of our partner. If I have this, this partner, this boyfriend, this girlfriend, what does that make me look like? What, what does that do for me? How do I present? How do we present? How do I want to move in the world, right? It's the same thing with um, with adults. You know, we live in a, there, there, I forgot the researcher's name, but I think she called it, a, a, we live in a very couple-centric society, right? It's very focused on couples and like, oh, finding your other person and being together and everything like, where like being, being on your own is like is like a failure or something. I don't know. It's like a weird thing where like why is coupling like the goal? Like why is that 
why is that something that everyone should do or that's the best thing like what is that you know yeah it's interesting right and is that across all cultures or would you like what cultures would you say you've seen that most in that's interesting the, the study that i was talking about I'll, I'll look it up after after we speak um i think it was it was western culture i think it was pretty much the u.s i think it was the u.s um but yeah, that's kind of like the goal. You see it in the movies, you see it around. It's like that's how you that's how you win in life, right? If you have a good yeah, partner, totally. whatever it is. And but why is that? Right? Why why is that why is that the goal? So when we think about it a little more existentially, right? I think we think about like loneliness. We think about mortality. The idea of dying alone is like so scary to everyone. But I think it's really more dying that's scary, you know, but it's just like we can't not die. So at least we can die with someone to <laughs> to mourn us. Right. So, yeah, I, I think there's there are hints of that maybe in that notion, but I'm not sure why that is. It's a little bit obsessed. Right. And if uh, I don't know if you recall. I wonder yeah. I wonder if it's because we've stepped away from communities as well. Like we, mm. we don't have that sense of, you know, living in one community where. Everyone has a different role and there's, you know, that feeling important in the community, feeling supported by the community. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real, that's really interesting insight. Um, and I, I do definitely see, you know, with some people how dating replaces social life. Right. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah I, I could kind of just date a lot or have a lot of sex and feel like I'm getting the social interaction that I need, but I'm not really wow. um, getting that same fulfillment necessarily right of, of social engagement of mental connection things like that wow it just makes me think of when i was living in new york and you know my friends and i we all had very limited social time and if we were going to do something that was related to a hobby or community you know it would it, it was worth it if, if there was a potential to meet someone there right right so yeah it's as if yeah isn't that funny that you're saying that like yeah either you didn't have any time to do social things so all you did was date or the social things that you did had to have an element of like, oh, I could meet someone I could date here. Right. I, I don't know if you recall the show um, Sex in the City. Are you familiar? Yeah. 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 So there's I've this... seen it 500 times. Oh, good. So maybe you'll remember this, this part of this episode. It was so good. I don't remember all the details, but um, Carrie's like a little tired of buying gifts for this friend who like has all of these like like life, like milestones, like she got engaged and then she got married and then she had a baby shower uh -huh. and she leaves like this long message on her machine. Like I, she wants a gift for like being her own person or something like that. Like kind of like she also wants to get a gift just because she's not married or doesn't have a kid doesn't mean you're not worthy of a gift. Wow. Right. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> so there are these. Yeah. We're finding those milestones. Right. Yeah. So it's funny how, you know, we, we, you know, we think about, you know, when we think about it from a social psychology perspective, I think that relationships often, especially like heteronormative relationships, give us um, access. They give us membership into a certain kind of community, right? So into a certain kind of adult, mature, whatever it is, group um, that is definitely encouraged in society, right? As, as, uh, um, and, and part of conformity, really. Yeah. Yeah. So is that adding an, a whole other level to what you were speaking of before that we're just putting so many expectations on our relationships? Yeah. Yeah. You know, definitely. I think it's interesting to know what the, the drivers are, right? Like what the motivation is, like even knowing that saying, you know, saying I, I am, you know, I want to, to marry this person because I, I want to present as a married couple is at least being honest, right? Or, or I want to be, you know, engaged or accepted in my community or, or I want my grandmother to stop nagging me or whatever it is that we kind of, at least we're, we're recognizing, it, you know, and sometimes it sounds silly and sometimes it's important, but we often, you know, s along the lines of what you were saying, like we don't always communicate those, things, but then we expect them. Right. So we expect them in a partner. We expect them to somehow understand, even though we know they're not mind readers. But there are all these kind of expectations of like what they should do and who they should be. And like, where do we create these images? Like, I don't know where where these avatars come from, this notion of like this best partner ever, you know, as opposed to like the big hands idea. Right. Or just like 
we're just two people trying to figure it out. Like, I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but you look trustworthy or like, I, I can rely on you. You're nice enough. You know, I think that if you, it, that doesn't sound romantic, but it'll probably, you know, have good odds of success. Right. Right. Wow. I'm going to quote you on that. I love how you said that. <laughs> it's like perfect for a Hallmark greeting card. <laughs> <laughs> Let's spend our life together. You're good enough. You seem nice enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's also, so you know, great. we think about like romanticism in the 1800s and kind of the whole idea, you know, of what, you know, Jane Austen and, and, and what, what, how we look at what we want from a relationship. And I think, it speaks very much to what was lacking, you know, when these, when these beautiful poems and stories were written, you know, and, and there was maybe some of this fire and passion and that, that is, you know, in the human spirit. And, and again, I think that one thing is certain, you know, we are social animals and without social support and social engagement, we, we deteriorate. Our mental health deteriorates dramatically, right? There are studies with with rats, you know, uh, uh, who um, or mice, um, where they where they have cocaine on a drip. You know, they can take cocaine, um, and they do. You know, they take it very enthusiastically when they're alone, but when they're in a group, they um, tend to take it less because there is a sense of community or support or other people. So often it's isolation, right? It, it's a you know we think about abandonment, being alone being unlovable, right? There are all kinds of interpretations we put on those things that um, that push us. They push us further and further away and make mm-hmm. us feel less valid, less important, less lovable. And, um, and the, that's a challenge. So I think recognizing that, it, you know, a romantic relationship is part of a spectrum of social relationships, right? It's just, it's just part of that. And the main thing is that we have people in our life who can be there for us and how that's manifest and in what way, you know, that everyone is free to decide, you know, you can be asexual and sex is really not of any interest to you, but companionship is having someone in your life is like, why is that not important? Having, you know, close, uh, you know, two close friends is more important to some people than having a hundred friends that are pretty good. friends. Some people just want you know, more, you know, of, of what we call weaker links, right? So there's all kinds of relationships out there. And I don't think there's any right one or wrong one. But one thing is for sure that with COVID, we've learned how important those relationships are. They are to students, mm. to kids, to adults, to in relationships. We learned how much we actually need people. And after spending so much time saying, ah, I don't want to go to that thing. I don't want to do this thing. It's so annoying. You know, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go to school. We said like, wait, there's an element that we miss. We miss having people in our lives, you know, in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. How do you see that, you know, this situation of being, of all being isolated and separated affect how we create those romantic, romantic relationships? You know, specifically, I'm thinking about people who were super anti-commitment and were just going on dates, you know, five dates a week and we're like, you know, I'm not into this. Have you seen or or do you foresee a change in that in people moving towards more um, committed relationships? Well, there was this uh, slang, you know, at least here in New York, that people were saying, you know, will you be my winter? Have you heard that? This like my winter, like um, buddy. <laughs> you know, I I remember that. <laughs> I actually remember how excited my friends and I would be for winter because we're like, guys are going to want to date us now, you know, like we're going to find someone to watch Netflix with. Right. Right. So there's definitely that notion of like shacking up. Um, even if it wasn't, even if you knew that the relationship wasn't going anywhere, but just having someone else because we didn't want to be isolated. That was very common. I think that definitely helped with people who maybe were scared to take that jump of like moving in together or seeing how the relationship would work. So that was good. But, but then on the other hand, like, I think that divorces have also um gone up considerably right where people are like "Ooh, no i'm i'm only comfortable with four hours a day of you like like you know 12 hours a day is way too much i actually don't even like you you know so that you know so there are all kinds of change that's probably good right it's probably good to kind of accelerate you know is this working is this not working so no one has to waste their time 
Um, but we definitely have seen a shift. You know, again, like we were talking about earlier, there's also concentrated time, like a lot of time. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how healthy that is. I think having our space built into our, our relationships is important, you know, because again, that communication piece could be hurtful. Again, like honesty is, is a good policy. Um, but, but it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always feel good to, to hear someone tell you, I'm just someone who needs to be alone for four hours a day, or I don't really like people until 11 a.m. Like I just, <laughs> I just don't, you know, so ways to kind of, you know, that we, we lived our life beforehand that kind of it worked out in that way whatever it is kind of work that we take or the kind of schedule that we kept you know we were able to do though you go to the gym or you take a nap or you go to you know we had the access to all of those tools that were really um coping mechanisms right and then when those are all taken away it's interesting i think we'll come out better for it but it definitely is interesting to see like oh how do we navigate this mm, yeah so many new ways of relating to each other we'll all get to learn like how to not make it one extreme or the other because yeah I'm thinking about you know what I learned growing up about orthodox relationships and how during a woman's menstrual period they would sleep apart but that would also create tension so it's like it's just important too to create that tension between two people right because once you've seen someone like brush your teeth while peeing in the toilet it's like it just takes away everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely an argument to be made, you know, that that idea that absence makes the heart grow fonder or some kind of leaving some sense of, of mystery or excitement, you know. Um, definitely something to say for that. Um, Esther Perel, who is a relationships expert, uh, very interesting psychologist, um, speaks about that too. This idea of like cheating with your partner, right? Like kind of like the idea of like making it a new being a new person or playing a new role, you know, so definitely something to say for that, you know? Mm -hmm. you know? I love that. Cheating with your partner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're wrapping up. Um, is there anything that you would like to see and how we're um, relating to each other and creating romantic relationships aside from, you know, all the things that we mentioned so far? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm, very optimistic and very pleased to see how this younger generation is growing up right so i have two teenagers and um and i work with with primarily with with emerging adults right so 20 somethings and um i feel like we've gotten a lot better about addressing things that have been stigmatized for so long so talking about mental health talking about feeling safe talking about consent, right? All of these things, I think, we're moving in the right direction. And it feels very, very positive. Um, you know, I, I spoke with a group of, of high schoolers and the amount of people that identify as pan, pansexual, is fascinating. Yeah. They're just open and they, you know, these are things that I think for generations people would have identified, but it wasn't okay. It wasn't safe. Right. So you had to choose yeah. a side you know, and, you know, and there was a lot of pressure to choose one side, you know, so I think now there's more fluidity when it comes to gender, when it comes to all kinds of things, there's just more openness. There's, so I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about how we're moving. And I think like this podcast, for example, right, just being able to talk about these things instead of them being marked negative or bad or, or, you know, some kind of problem is saying like, I can't be the only one thinking about this this I, I can't be the yeah. only person in the world who has had this challenge so how about i put myself out there and that means i need to be a little vulnerable and a little bit uh, a little bit uncomfortable but it may help people you know and it certainly does so i think that courage is what we're seeing a lot of and 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 that is definitely moving us in a healthier more real uh, uh type of relationship mm, i love that what beautiful words to end on Thank you so, so much. How can my listeners get in touch with you? Oh, thank you so much. Um, uh, the Wiser Place is my uh, website. Um, so Wiser without an E. So T-H-E-W-I-S-R place um, dot com um, or on, I guess, Instagram. Um, HUD, H-O-D underscore Tamir, T-A-M-I-R. And if you are interested in the anti-anxiety notebook you can just google that um and it's uh, therapynotebooks.com um it's a great uh 
a great uh, journal, a guided journal for anxiety as well. So any one of those areas would be great. Um, but yeah, I look forward Perfect. to talking to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of Commitment Phobe. If this episode left an impact on you, please share with friends, family, loved ones, ex-lovers, the people in your life who you think would benefit from listening to these conversations. If you're curious about the kind of work that I do as an intuitive coach, head on over to my website, www.tanaimelgram.com, where you can learn more about what I do with my one-on-one coaching clients, group coaching programs, and you can set up a discovery call with me to see how I can be of support to you. You could also follow me on Instagram on my handle at Tanai Milgram. I'm always posting content about what I'm up to and new insights, new learnings that I'm getting along my journey. And please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review if you like what you heard. So together we can start changing the conversation we're having about intimacy and commitments. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you next week.